The Sons of Liberty is a politically neutral organization. We believe that the Judeo-Christian ethic has provided the principles upon which this nation was founded. It is our belief that these principles provide not only the foundation and framework for American government and society, but are also essential to the maintenance of a fair and just society. All program content is based on a Christian biblical worldview. One of you said to me recently that we shouldn't rock the boat. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you that I am a boat rocker. Good day, America. Welcome, Christians, conservatives, constitutionalists, liberals, libertarians, communists, Islamists, LGBTQ, RSTV, WXYZ people, all the boat rockers in the house, and anybody else I may have missed to the Sons of Liberty radio show here on Red State Talk Radio, where we use the Bible and the Constitution, not to see who's on the right or the left, but who is on the straight and narrow. I'm your host, Tim Brown, coming to you live from the U.S. occupied state of South Carolina, the editor at SonsOfLibertyMedia.com, and for our Muslim friends, I'm the infidel that Allah warns you about. I hold to the book, the Bible, as the authoritative word of God. Glad that you guys have joined us this morning. If you would like to check us out online, please do so. SonsOfLibertyRadio.com. Also, SonsOfLibertyMedia.com. In fact, if you're listening by way of the radio and you want to watch the video portion of the radio show, that's right, you see the face that's made for radio. Head over to SonsOfLibertyMedia.com. There you're going to see two videos at the top of the page. The one on the left side is Bradley's show from yesterday. So if you miss that, you can catch it up until 3 p.m. Eastern uh, <clears throat> today. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, for you guys on Red State Talk Radio and the Missouri Liberty Radio and whoever else is carrying this out there, uh, just to let you know, Bradley is on GCN. That's um, the flagship that you know does InfoWars, Alex Jones. So he's on a different radio station, but he's on the same webpage, sonsoflibertymedia.com, as I am, and also the same Rumble page at 3 o'clock. Okay, so if you haven't heard Bradley, I would highly encourage you to listen to Bradley in the afternoons at 3 o'clock Eastern, and you can catch that again. Before it's news.com, top of the page there where we're at also, and we appreciate Mike on his team. Also, Rumble, Sons of Liberty Radio Live, and then sonsoflibertymedia.com. In fact, if you want to watch that video portion of the radio show, you can go to Rumble, right? Or you can go to SonsOfLibertyMedia.com, right there. And um, <clears throat> we're on the right side of SonsOfLibertyMedia.com. You can blow it up on whatever device you've got. Uh, look for the Rumble icon, bottom right-hand corner, and then join us in the chat on Rumble. Click on that, and that'll take you over there, and that'll be great. Um, you can also meet new friends over there, and we seem like we got a pretty tight-knit family over there. Um, and good morning to all you guys. And while you're over there, please subscribe to that channel, Sons of Liberty Radio Live. Sons of Liberty Radio Live. Also, our store is available. The link is at the top of sonsoflibertymedia.com. You can click on that. It'll take it to you. Or you can go directly to our store at The Sons of Liberty. Don't forget The, thesonsofliberty.squarespace.com. Uh, this week, we are highlighting the All the Prophets. We're pointing the front book. This is Bradley's latest book, $10 in our store. We also have Soldier of the Cross. That's also $10. Um, and near the top there, you're going to see the shirt with the artwork of Soldier of the Cross. And also on the back, the quote from Peter Muhlenberg. And then we have the bundle still. Those start at $34. 
That's a shirt of your size, the book, and dog tag of your color, black or silver. Again, that starts at uh, $34. So you should be good to go right there with what that, what that is. And uh, again, if you would like to support the Sons of Liberty, a lot of the, the things we have in the store, uh, my talking with Bradley is, it's, it's not a thing to really support the ministry. It's mainly there to provide tools that you can use you know, whether they're education tools or conversation starters or whatever, that's really what the store is about. It isn't about us making money. In fact, I think when I talk to him about certain things, it's basically a wash or there's a loss of money. If you can believe that, you, you really can, um, uh, that that's what's going on. So in any case, if you would like to actually support the ministry and help keep us out there doing the things we do on radio, internet, and among the people, there's a donate button at the top of sonslibertymedia.com. You can click on that, make a one-time donation, or you can uh, partner with us monthly as a son or daughter of Liberty, and we do appreciate it very, very much. Okay, <clears throat> I um, I got to tell you, I've started something a little new for me. I have uh, I purchased uh, an well, I've got a Geneva Bible uh, on CD, which I really like, um, and uh, I got a. I, I don't know what you call it. They, you have the people reading it, but it's sort of dramatized. You know, you got little sounds and different voices for the people who are reading the text. And um, I got one of those, and I thought, well, this is kind of neat. I, you know, you kind of you get a little different sense of things when you're hearing it like that. So I've started to play that at night when I go to bed. Turn it on and. Probably inside of two weeks, you can put in your conscience and subconscience, while you're sleeping even, the Word of God. And so it's really interesting because I sleep good, but it's very strange in that there are certain places where the Scripture, he'll just be going along and then all of a sudden something clicks on and I hear it in my mind and it kind of sticks. And nobody like three or four times during the night that's like that. So I've been doing some of that. And, um, you know, I've, I, I just, you know, it, each morning it's, a, it's an issue of, okay, Lord, um, you know, I'd like to give the people something that benefits them, speak that which edifies the hearer, right? And I want to do that. And for some reason, this issue of strengthen the things that were, strengthen that which remains, or the things that which remain. Um, and I think that, uh, that's, that's part of the, the issue that the church has today, because what we're going to read here is, you know, and I, I've heard preachers talk about, oh, the churches in Revelation or, you know, the church age period. No, they're real churches. They're real churches and they address real things that were going on at the time. So what I want to do is we're going to go back to Revelation chapter 1 just to kind of give an intro here, and then we're going to go to Revelation chapter 3. So if you've got your Bibles out and you want to take a look at those things, you can, and uh, just to take a look at the church of Sardis. And uh, if you're not familiar with the church of Sardis, hopefully today will be a little, little bit of education, and hopefully you'll go on and educate yourself more um, on what is said here. But let's, let's start here at the beginning, because John is writing a letter, or I should say, I should say it this way, Jesus is writing letters, he's writing it in one letter, but he separates this out, to the churches that are there in Asia Minor. 
And there's some things that we learn about what he's doing from chapter 1, and then we're going to jump over to chapter 3, okay? So let's do that this morning. We're just going to jump right into it. Revelation chapter 1, and here's what we see. And notice, the, just take time just to notice the words that are here, okay? I know a lot of people want to ignore these words so that they can talk about whatever they want to talk about, but the words are here. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show, and by the way, um, you know, the revelation, we, get, we, we say that, some of your, your Bibles might say the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And see, we use apocalypse in this thing of like, oh, the world's ending and stuff like that. That's not what it is. It's an unveiling. It's a revealing, revelation. Not revelations. There's not many revelations of Jesus Christ. There is the revelation of of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to tell you what, I'm a stickler because when people say the book of Revelations and they stick S on it, they sound ignorant. That's not what it is. It's Revelation. Okay? Revelation. <laughs> the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. Now stop and think about that a second. What is he writing there? Well, He's writing things that God gave him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. Now, what does Amos tell us? He says, well, God doesn't do anything without showing it to his prophets, showing it to his men, right? So he's, he's, this is, the, this is the, the parallel there from the Old Testament that God is going to show his servants things which must shortly come to pass. Not thousands of years in the future, shortly. That's what he says. That is what he says, right? Yes, it is what he says. And I'm just going to tell you, I think all of the New Testament was completed by 70 AD. I am not a late date thing on really. I believe they're completed before the destruction of Jerusalem. And I think there's plenty of evidence internal to what John writes here that would demand that we see it, that it's written at that time. And so these things are shortly to come to pass, okay? Then he goes on and he says, and he sent and signified it by his angel, or his messenger, unto his servant, John, who bear record of the word of God, and of the testimony of Jesus Christ, and of all things that he saw. Now, it's very important because <clears throat> Bradley's been hitting on this. I notice this is coming up uh, as a phrase more in some of the presentations that he's had where he's talked about, you know, where he writes his book, he says it's based on the word and testimony. Well, what's the testimony of Jesus Christ? Well, that he is the Son of God, that he came in the flesh, that he gave himself for sinners, uh, and that all men are obligated everywhere to repent and bow their knee to that king. And he is the one and only king that we're to bow our knee to. He's the one and only that we give our allegiance to. Okay? So we see this here. He's bearing witness of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all the things that he saw. And then he says this. He wants to reiterate the time he's talking about. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein. Why? Why? For the time is at hand. Again, I'm just going to stress what the text itself says. This is what it says itself. It's at hand. It's at, you, you have this picture that it's the length of your arm. 
It's just right out there. You can reach and grab it. It's about to happen. It's about to take place. That's what he's saying. The things that are written in this prophecy, the time is at hand. By the way, he also reiterates that at the, I call them the bookends. That's right out the bat. Verses 1 and 3 in Revelation, and I think there's another place that we're going to read here in just a minute. That It comes right out of the gate, and it tells you this time's pretty close. It's not thousands of years off in the future. It's, it's about to happen now. But 22.6, that's the other bookend. And he says, these things are about to happen. The time's at hand. I mean, he lets you know at the beginning and at the ending what's going on there. Okay? All right, now with that said, let's go back to the text. Here's what, he re- here's what we read. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you, and peace from him which is, and which was, and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall well because of him. Even so... Amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation in the kingdom of patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit of the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and, af- and being turned, I seven golden candlesticks, and in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot and gird about the paps with a girdle. gold. Now, he's going he's gonna to tell us all this imagery, what it is and who it is that he's speaking about here. Okay, So we'll get this, and then we're going to jump over to Sardis. So he's in, he sees seven uh, golden candlesticks. Now, actually, I'm going to tell you, I think lampstands is a better translation. I'm not going to get caught up in the things, but I don't think they were using candles at this time. I think they were using lampstands. This is why you would have to put the oil in the lamps. So this just, just a little translation issue there. But it's, that's, these are the, the understanding of what they had back then. And in the midst of the seven golden lamps, or seven candlesticks, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment, down to the foot, girt about the paps with a golden girdle. Uh, this is, uh, they're seeing him in his priestly attire there. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. Now, does, is this striking up, is this conjuring up any images of the artist renditions of Jesus that you see? Yeah, they don't, do they? They humiliate the Lord again. They bring him down into his humanity, uh, into his, uh, his earthly ministry capacity as, as the God-man. But he's glorified now. He's not, he doesn't look like that anymore, Okay. His head and hairs were like wool, uh, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet like a defined brass, as if they were burned in a furnace. And his voice as the sound of many waters. Again, does that sound like the imagery you see when you walk into the local 
um, I don't know, Christian bookstore or whatever. They got General Jesus. He's washing people's feet. It's like the, like the thing that we saw the other day that we talked about. He's in there washing people's feet. He's still in his humility. He's not exalted. He's not glorified. He's not King of kings and Lord of lords. No, no, no. He's still, he's still the, the, the humbled Christ who was here on the earth. He's already accomplished what he accomplished as Messiah. He's not continuing to do Messiah work anymore. That's not what he, he came to do that. He fulfilled that. And now he's king of kings and lord of lords. Okay? And he had in his right hand, oh, excuse me. Yeah, he had in his right hand seven stars. And out of his mouth went the two, a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, so, Now, look at this. This is somebody who actually encounters Jesus. Not one of these fake people that show up on YouTube or TikTok or something and say, Oh, Jesus appeared to me while I was shaving, and I just had a conversation with him for about an hour. No, you didn't. You had a conversation with yourself. Because I can tell you what, every time you see this kind of interaction between uh, where the... The invisible becomes visible, whether it's angels, whether it's the Christ himself, or whatever the case may be, to men, men are petrified. They're just, they're just scared out of their wits. They're fearful. And the same thing happened to John. I fell at his feet as dead. And he's obviously fearful because why? He, that's Jesus, laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not. I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Let me ask you something uh, for my Muslim friends. Can your Muhammad say that? Nope. He can't say that. He, he can't say that. What about all the other religious leaders around the world, whether they were the Buddha or the Hare Krishna or whoever? Can, can, can the followers of those guys say that he, is, he was dead, but he's alive forevermore? No, they can't say that. They can't say that at all. And he says, Amen, and I have the keys of hell and death. Now, who's got the keys of hell and death? It ain't the devil, guys. I know some of you out there, you keep thinking that, that, that Satan's just, he's just in charge, man. He's more powerful than God. He's running the show. No, no, no. That's not what's going on at all. He's the one drawing men into hell. No, no, no. Men are led away by their own lust, James chapter 1. And when that lust has given birth, what, what does it give birth to? Death. That's what sin does. Okay? But who has the keys of hell and death? Jesus Christ. Not the devil. Not some man that somebody wants to play pen to tail on the Antichrist with. The Lord has them. He's got the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. And then he tells him about these stars and candlesticks. He says, the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches or <clears throat> messengers. Most of the commentators would understand this as the elders of the churches. Those who are teaching and leading the flock there. Okay. The seven stars are the messengers. That's the picture. And the seven candlesticks, which thou sawest, well, that's pretty simple. They are the seven churches, right? So this is not hard to understand what's laid out. And Jesus is the one who is dictating this letter 
to John to send to each of these churches. And so in chapters 2 and 3, he takes these seven churches and he sends them each a letter. They're pretty short, they're pretty concise, and he follows a pattern except for, I think, two of the churches where it's just, there's no need for doing that. Uh, One is the church of Smyrna. He doesn't have anything bad to say about Smyrna. They're a persecuted church. They're enduring that Try those and tribulations that Paul says we must all endure if we're going to enter the kingdom of God. So they were doing that, and Jesus comes along and he doesn't beat them up about anything. He encourages them in their persecution. He encourages them to remain fast. Okay? And he always presents at the end of each letter something for those who overcome. They're overcoming the world. And what overcomes the world? Our faith right? (laughs) And we're told they overcame him in this same book. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. They testify to the fact of what Jesus has done in their own life. And with that said, there's already been several letters that have been written in chapter two, and then we pick up here. This is chapter three. We're just going to read these six verses, first six verses, because this is dealing with the church at Sardis. Unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God. Now, you know, don't get lost in the numbers. A lot of this has to do with the perfection, the completion, okay? Um, I don't think he's up there looking at seven spirits of God. This may be the vision form that he has or... You know, what he's seen before there, he's referencing back to chapter 1 that we read. But it's not as though he's seeing, you know, that there's literally seven spirits of God. I don't think that's what he's getting at at all. I think he's talking about the completion, the power, the fullness of of the Spirit of God. And he says, and the seven stars. Okay? So again, he, he references back to there. Then he references back to the messengers of the church, or the elders of that church. I know thy works. He says, thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. You've got a name that you're alive, but practically speaking, you're dead. Tom, I'm going to tell you one time. It simply means messenger, okay? Angels are not elders. You're exactly right when you're referencing that that's what they are. But in the text, if you go and look, go look up the word, tell me what you, th- what you find, it's going to mean messenger. doesn't mean the heavenly being, that's not what he has at all. He's talking to the guys who are there. In fact, he's going to be addressing that uh, here in just a minute. But he tells them, I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest, but you're dead. So in the community, they're proclaiming how alive to God they are. But what's really going on? What's really taking place there? Well, what's really taking place is they're being hypocrites. You have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. Now keep that in mind, because that's going to come into play in the things that he writes here. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. Now, at first... When you first read that, what are you thinking? (laughs) Well, Jesus, you just said they got a name that they live, 
but they're dead, and now you're telling them to strengthen things that remain that are ready to die. What, what's going on? Well, sorry, I need a little drink of water here, and my mouth is really dry. Okay, so notice what he says. There's a contrast that's going on. He says that the people there, the people there have a name that they're alive, but they're dead. Okay? All right, so let me read you just a little um, bit on this city here that's here. All right? Um, this, is, um, this is from John MacArthur, and if you will, just indulge me just a little bit, but I think a little bit of background on Sardis is helpful here. And so this is from his commentary on the city of Sardis here, uh, from his Revelation commentary. He says, To a striking degree, the history of the church at Sardis paralleled that of the city founded about 1200 B.C. Sardis had been one of the greatest cities in the ancient world, capital of the fabulously wealthy Lydian kingdom. The name of that kingdom's most famous king, Croesus, uh, lives on in the saying, as rich as Croesus. Aesop, the famous writer of fables, may have been from Sardis. Much of Sardis's wealth came from gold taken from the nearby Pactolus River. I hope I said that correctly. Archaeologists have found hundreds of crucibles used for refining gold in the ruins of Sardis. Gold and silver coins were apparently first minted at Sardis, and the city also benefited from its location at the western end of the Royal Road that led east to the Persian capital city of Susa and from its proximity to other important trade routes. It was also a center for wool production and the garment industry. In fact, Sardis claimed to have discovered how to dye wool. So if you want to know where that phrase came from, died in the wood. I'm just, I'm just teasing. Sardis was located about 30 miles south of Thyatira in the fertile valley of the Hermus River. A series of spurs or hills jutted out from the ridge of Mount Timolus, T-M-O-L-U-S, south of the Hermus River. On one of those hills, some 1,500 feet above the valley floor, stood Sardis. Its location made the city all but impregnable. The hill on which Sardis was built had smooth, nearly perpendicular rock walls on three sides. Only from the south could the city be approached via a steep, difficult path. The one drawback to an otherwise ideal site was that there was limited room for the city to expand. Eventually, as Sardis grew, a new city sprang up. At the foot of the hill, the old site remained a refuge to retreat into when danger threatened. Its seemingly impregnable location caused the inhabitants of Sardis to become overconfident, and that complacency eventually led to the city's downfall. Through carelessness, the unimaginable happened. Sardis was conquered. Through carelessness, the unimaginable happened. Uh, the news of its downfall sent shockwaves through the Greek world. Even in John's day, several centuries later, a um, proverbial saying equated to capture the Acropolis of Sardis with to do the impossible. Um, so they, yeah, they made up their own little phrases of what they did there. And this was um, Dr. Robert L. Thomas he recounts the fall of Sardis. And keep this in mind, too, as we're listening to what Jesus warned them about if they didn't strengthen these things which remain. We're going to get to that in just a little bit. 
Despite an alleged warning against self-satisfaction by the Greek god whom he consulted, Croesus, the king of Lydia, initiated an attack against Cyrus, king of Persia, but was soundly defeated. Returning to Sardis to recoup and to recoup and rebuild his army for another attack, he was pursued quickly by Cyrus, who laid siege against Sardis. Choresis uh, felt utterly secure in his impregnable situation atop the Acropolis and foresaw an easy victory over the Persians, who were cornered among the perpendicular rocks in the lower city, and easy prey for the assembling Lydian army to crush. After retiring one evening while the drama was unfolding, he awakened to discover that the Persians had gained control of the Acropolis by scaling one by one the steep walls. So secure did the Sardians feel that they, I want to call them Sardinians, that's sort of like a can of sardines, that's the way of the word. Anyway, Sardians feel that they left this means of access completely unguarded, permitting the climbers to ascend unobserved It is said that even a child could have defended the city from this kind of attack, but not so much as one observer had been appointed to watch the side that was believed to be inaccessible. Excuse me. History repeated itself more than three and a half centuries later when Antiochus the Great conquered Sardis by utilizing the services of a sure-footed mountain climber from Crete. His army entered the city by another route, while the defenders in careless confidence were, con- were content to guard the one known approach, the isthmus of land connected to Mount Timolus. I've got to fix this thing on, on, the, uh, on the computer here. I'm sorry, guys. I'm going to have to move my cursor because for whatever reason, my screens want to go black and shut things off, and hopefully everything's going to still go here. Hopefully you guys are with me. Um. He goes on and he says, Sardis never regained its independence, eventually coming under Roman control in 133 BC. Now keep that in mind because we're going we're gonna to draw some application out of that. Remember, this, the book of Revelation was not written to you and me. It wasn't written to us. Who was it written to? It was the seven churches of Asia Minor. We just read it out of chapter one. That's who it was written to. But was it written for us? Yep. And that's where we draw application from. So he says, a catastrophic earthquake destroyed the city in AD 17, but it was rebuilt with the generous financial aid of Emperor Tiberius. Oh yeah, he was generous financially (laughs) with the people's money, right? In gratitude, the inhabitants of Sardis built the temple in his honor. The city's primary object of worship, however, was the goddess Sibylle. The same goddess worshipped at Ephesus as Artemis or Diana. Hot springs not far from Sardis were celebrated as a spot in which the gods manifested their supposed power to give life to the dead, an ironic note for a city whose church was dead. In John's day, Sardis was prosperous but decaying, its glory days long past, both the city and the church it contained had lost their vitality. Now, that's, that's pretty interesting. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but as you're reading that, you may conjure up some images of what's going on in the United States today. If you're paying attention and you can draw the parallel, you can see the application right there, okay? But we're going to get to that in just a little bit. Let's go on down a little bit further. He says, Strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. Ooh. I haven't found thy works perfect 
before God. Well, we're not saved by works, Tim. We're saved by Jesus. You're exactly right. You're, you're exactly right. The fact that they have any works at all to speak of says that they know that. But he says, I haven't found them to be perfect. You guys aren't measuring up to what I've called you to do. You're not bearing the fruit of what I called you to be. They're in Sardis. Number th verse 3, Remember therefore how thou hast, thou hast received and heard and hold fast and, what is that? What is that word? Repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, if you're not going to wake up, if you're not going to come to your senses, and you're not going to pay attention to what's going on and do the works that you're supposed to do, what does he say? I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Rather interesting, isn't it? Kind of takes your mind back over there into Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, where he says, you know, we're not among those who do the things at night and they get drunk at night and do all these kinds of things. We're not among those people. We're, we're in the light. We know what's going on. And we know that this coming of the Lord is not going to be something that surprises us. That's what Paul tells them. But here for the church at Sardis, what does he say? I'm going to come on you like a thief if you don't repent. And you're not going to know that I even came. It's just going to happen that fast. He goes on and he says, Thou hast a few names, in, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. They're going to walk with me in white because they're worthy. Now, notice what he said here. You have a name that, you're, that thou livest, but you're dead. Okay? Then he says, strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. And how can he be saying this to a dead church? I mean, if you've got a dead church, if you've got people who aren't regenerate, and they're doing whatever they're doing, um... Don't you just need to make them alive? Well, yeah. Yeah, but he says some are. Look at verse 4. Thou hast a few names even in Sardis, which are, have not defiled their garments. They have been doing what they're supposed to do, but as a whole, you guys are dead. That's what he's telling them. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And then he comes down and he goes, He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. By the way, same word there that's in chapter 1. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Okay, all right, so let's go through a couple of things. Let's make a couple of points out of what we've looked at. Uh, here. Let me bring up my other notes over here. And um, so in chapter 1, or excuse me, in chapter 3, we've already given you a picture of kind of what Sardis was. It's this impregnable fortress, or that's what people thought. It's really interesting, isn't it, when people begin to trust in 
horses and chariots and things around them. And I'm not saying that there's not some wisdom if you're going to settle in an area to get you know, some kind of advantage out of the land or things of that nature. I'm not saying don't do that. I think that's, I think that's wise. I think that's those wise things. But if your trust is in that and not in the Lord, for instance, David went to face Goliath. Now, I know the, 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 the kind of um, uh, the high pietistic kind of guys would say, well, da- David could have just went out there and spoke words to him and the Lord would, yeah, he could have, I guess. I don't know. But he didn't, did he? He went and grabbed some rocks, stones, and he got his, his sling, right? He went out there with a weapon to defeat the giant. Uh, same, same kind of thing. Same kind of thing here. All right, so we, we saw what the city was that they thought, but he didn't put his trust. David didn't put his trust in the sling or the stone, did he? No, no, he came out and he pointed out the contrast between him and Goliath, and he says, you come to me with a spear and a sword, right? Or, yeah, you come to me with a spear and a sword. Your trust is in your strength, your stature, your weapons, your armor. But I come to you in the name of the Lord. He didn't even mention his, his stones or his sling, did he? He came in the name of the Lord. And so there's, there's the distinction. Sarnas was a, was a people who thought, nothing can touch us, man. I mean, we got the prime real estate here to protect us. And of course, they're engaged in idolatry too. We talked about the, um, uh, the, the goddess that they, they serve there, the same ones that uh, uh, you read about in the book of Acts. Great is, is, uh, is Diana and uh, all of that. Same, same goddess. That, I mean, it's the same false gods as the other people. And they thought God would overlook it or that nothing would happen to them, right? So, Again, what does Jesus say about the church? He's not talking about the culture at large. He's talking about the church. The church that he gave his own blood for. He says, you've got a name that you're alive, but you're really dead. Now, how many of you guys remember a class as an open book test, if you want to go look up, back up the shows and stuff like that? How many of you guys remember that we talked about this before, when we were referencing back, I, I told you about this, uh, and I think I put it up in one of the shows, the guy who wrote that paper on the Southern Baptist Convention, he, he called it an unregenerate convention. And he ultimately gets down to that they don't, that the majority of them were not holding to a biblical gospel. A gospel, that they didn't have a gospel that would save them. It would damn them for sure. It just made them feel good in their sin. Well, whatever's going on in Sardis, they have something very, very similar. Because they have a name that they're alive, but they're actually dead. Now, this comes out of the, uh, the particular, or out of, out of verse 2, where we read, Wake up and strengthen what remains. So you're, you, you've got a name that you're alive, but you're really dead. And then he tells them to wake up. Now, that shouldn't be uncommon. That shouldn't be hard to follow because what have we seen all through Scripture? Well, we've seen that sleeping and dying are sometimes parallel. For instance, 
when Lazarus actually dies, what does Jesus tell his, Lord, if you'd have been there, he wouldn't have died. What does Mary Martha, if, Lord, if you'd have been here, he wouldn't have died. He's not dead, guys. He's just what? Sleeping. What about Jairus' daughter? Right? Jesus is coming to the house. All the people are whining. What is he doing here? What's he going to be? He's not going to be able to do anything. They bring him in there. Don't worry. She's just sleeping. What does Paul say in Thessalonians? Don't go into just ridiculous mourning because those who have died in Christ, they are asleep. He says they are sleeping. They're going to be raised too, right? So what we see then, he says, you're dead, and he says, wake up. Wake up. And we already know there are some that he is, that he's speaking to, and we see that, we just read that a minute ago, verse 4, they haven't defiled their garments. They ha- he's not speaking to those people necessarily, because they haven't defiled their garments. But he is speaking to people there, and he says, strengthen what remains, which is about to die. What's he talking about? What's he talking about here? One of the things that, um, if you guys read the Jameson Fawcett Brown Bible commentary, this is what he has to say with regard to that. He said, the things which remain, strengthen those remaining few graces which in thy spiritual deadly slumber are not yet quite extinct. In other words, you, have, you guys have been there. You're like the writer of Hebrews. Remember what he says in Hebrews chapter 6, and I didn't open this up. Maybe I need to open that up just so we, we read it for the context there. Um, let, me, uh, let me back out here just a second, and I will, uh, I'll bring Hebrews 6 up because, uh, again, the writer there... Uh, communicate something that's along this line where he gives a warning about those who are in danger of apostasy. By the way, I, would, I had this out. I may make reference to some of this if we have the time. This is a little Puritan paperback. Yeah, you can see through it because it's green. Okay, um, It's called Apostasy from the Gospel. It's by John Owen, and uh, I highly recommend it. It's just a little bitty book. Yeah, you guys can see how thick it is, at least from the top of it, right? <laughs> um, but it's called um, Apostasy from the Gospel. It's by um, John Owen. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is warning against. He's warning the Hebrews of the time of going back to that old covenant system. This is why he takes all of the things from the temple all of the sacrifices, all of the patriarchs, all of the heroes of the faith. And he says, those guys did that all by faith, but the Christ is greater than all of them. And he says, quit going back. Don't even be tempted to go back. You need to go forward with Christ. So here's what he writes to them. He says, therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on into perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptism, of the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. It's almost like the, the Hebrews are kind of like the Corinthians in the first letter that he writes to them. They're kind of, they're kind of babes here, okay? And what he's doing. 
And he says, we don't need to, you, you guys should be past this. We, sh we shouldn't have to stay on this all the time. And I think this is part of the problem of the American church is that we got, we kind of get the general nature of what we're, what, what's done at the beginning, but it's the things of the continuation. Where's this growth at? What, how is the, the kingdom expanding in our lives and around us in our communities? That's what many people need to hear. And this we do if God permit. For it is impossible for those, and I want you to get this. See, I went to, I told you guys, I went to a, um, uh, my, my, my dad put me in a Free Will Baptist junior high. And the most amazing thing, I can still remember it now, these guys would go here and read Hebrews 6 and say, see, you can lose your salvation. What? You don't have a very good Savior if, you can, if, he, if he can lose you. He can somehow seek you out, find you, and save you, but he can't keep you. That is not the Christ of the Bible. That's, that's not the gospel message. It really isn't. And they would say, oh, you can, you can lose your salvation. That's nonsense. It, doesn't the Bible say that he is not only the author of our faith, but the what? The finisher. He who began a good work in you will complete it. <laughs> I mean, I, I think when people say stuff like they're saying more about what they believe about God than what they do about man. In any case, back here to Hebrews chapter 6, he says, It is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they should fall away, that's, that's what we refer to as apostasy, to renew them again into repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put Him to an open shame. Now here's the thing. For the free will Baptists, they thought, well, you can put yourself into Christ's hands or the Father's hands, and then you can take yourself out. Well, wait a minute. Jesus said, no, you know, they're in my Father's hand. No man can take them out of my Father's hand. Oh, but you can take your... I'm sorry, don't you meet the definition of man, no man? <laughs> you, you, you meet that. They would still come in here, these people who believe this stuff, and they would say, well, we got to keep after them and praying for them and calling them to repentance and this, that, and the other. Well, wait a minute. If you're going to use this to say somebody can fall away and they lose their salvation, then he says it's impossible for them to be renewed again. That's what, he, that's what the Word of God says, right? It's impossible. And he said, and notice what he says. They were once enlightened. They've tasted of the heavenly gift. They were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. What does that mean? Well, it could mean one of two things, at least from my perspective of what I'm seeing here. He's talking to people there who their families are putting a lot of pressure on them to go back to Judaism. And they really don't want to go because they know there's nothing there, and he's doing it sort of as a comfort to them. And I mean comfort in the old English way of speaking. You guys remember the, the painting of the king, and he's running right there with his soldiers, and he's got, his, he's got the, the broad side of the sword, and he's kind of smacking them in the back. And the title was something, I forget the guy's name, but it was saying he was comforting his, his soldiers. That's what I mean. He was spurring them on. He was pushing them ahead. Giving them a slap on the back. Come on, guys, let's go. Get going. That could be that, and it's a warning to them, and they're heeding that warning. And it can also be that, which are those who came into the community, like what John talks about in 1 John, they eventually leave. And why is that? 
It's not because they had salvation and they lost it. He said they went out from us that it might be manifest that they are not of us. Do you follow what I'm saying? Oh, Tim, you don't know my story. Well, if you're giving me that right there, you're probably in the second category. Because I can tell you, if you're able to just leave, just complete, where's the life at? Where's the evidence of that life that desires to be with the people of God? I, I, where's it at? Yeah, that's, that's what it is. So he says this here to them. He also says to them, these things are made partakers of the Holy Ghost. They have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. Oh, they've been in the midst and they've seen God at work among his people. That's what they've done, okay? That's what they've done. They've seen God do great and mighty things amongst God's people. They've experienced that. But some of them, it's not resulted in change. Well, how can that be, Tim? He's writing to these Hebrew believers. Yeah, well, he's writing to the Hebrews. They're obviously in the covenant, but some of them are not among the elect. And we've went over that before. Maybe we'll have to do a show on that again for those who, who don't understand the distinction there. Um, we'll, we'll deal with that. But I, don't get caught up in that right now. Okay, We're just wanting to get cover the top of this. He says they've tasted the good word of God. What does the Bible say? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Right? David would talk about that, that he is, you know, his word was like honey. John would say that too. He'd say, you know, it's, it's great in my mouth. It was like honey. Then it got in my belly and it was bitter. Ugh. So here you have a group of people to which he's writing to. They've got all this, they've got the good things of God around them, but some of them are struggling to stay in the covenant there. They're wanting to go back to the old covenant. They're wanting to go back to the things that don't deliver them from sin. And that's a problem. That's a huge problem. So, with that said, Jameson Fawcett Brown, Bible commentary, here's what, here's what he says. Strengthen those thy remaining few graces, which in thy spiritual deadly slumber are not yet quite extinct. The things that remain can hardly mean the persons that are not yet dead, obviously, but are ready to die. For Revelation 3, 4 implies that the few faithful ones at Sardis were not ready to die, but were full of life. That's what he said there, isn't it? The two oldest manuscripts read, were ready, literally were about to die. Namely, at the time when you strengthen them, this implies that thou art dead, is to be taken with limitation. In other words, they ha again, they haven't produced the fruit that they're supposed to do. They've become lazy. They've become complacent. That's what he's telling them. Your, your light's not shining. He's kind of like what, what he wrote to Ephesus. You know, you need to, you, you better repent or I'm going to come take your candlestick away. And my understanding was there's basically no light there in Ephesus today. That that was removed because they didn't repent. So, he tells them these things, and another commentator has said, these things that remain, these are the duties that they had to do. It wasn't just for the church, it was for the community. Again, stop and think for a second. When the Lord delivered the people of Israel out of bondage from Egypt, and he brought them into a land, 
One of the things he told them was, I'm driving out the people before you because they're committing the very sins I'm telling you not to do, not to engage in. Now, he told them that. He, they, he put them in the land so that they would be a light unto the world, a light unto the Gentile world, right? That's what he put them there for. Instead of being a light to the world, what did Israel do? They turned it on themselves. They kept all the goodies for themselves. They were unwilling to share it, really, with the rest of the world. This is why when you get a prophet like Jonah, and remember, God always sent his prophets to his people, his covenant people. But for Jonah, what did he do? He sent Jonah to a Gentile kingdom, a kingdom outside that covenant. And he granted them the very thing he demanded of them, which is repentance. Listen, friend, you say, I've tried everything. I've prayed the prayers. I've baptized. I've done all the, maybe you've done some worldly things to try to deal with your sin and stuff. You, you, can't deal, you can't do it that way. You can only deal with it coming to God in Christ. That's the only way to deal with that. And if you do that, then you do become alive. If the Lord should so choose to give you the mercy and the very things He gives you. But the things He demands of you, the perfection, righteousness, holiness, forgiveness of sin, the things that He demands of you, He is the one who provides them. You don't muster those things up. You come as you are, the dirty, dead sinner. You come as you are, and He makes you alive, and He makes you clean, and He does these things in you. He does them. And so here, here, was the, here was this church. They have a name that they're alive, but he says, eh, you're not really, not really living up to that, are you? You're not really living up to that. So, we're told that if, you know, hey, if you guys aren't going to watch, if you're not going to do those things, that you have been given, and let's go back to, uh, I think it's verse 3, back over into Revelation chapter 3. He says, Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast, and repent. Um, I'm going to have just a couple of minutes, I'll stay over with you guys just to kind of finish this up, because I want to draw an application here for what we see going on in the United States today. So if you want to pick that up, sonsoflibertymedia.com, beforeitsnews.com, top of the page, or strength, or excuse me, Rumble, Sons of Liberty Radio Live. We're going to finish that up. I'll just be a few minutes, I hope, and uh, we'll draw some application for that tomorrow. Lord willing, James Ragussi is going to be with us. We're going to see how the Who's doing now that they didn't meet their own deadline. All right, I want to welcome everybody over from Red State Talk Radio. And uh, okay, so let's just jump right back in here. Revelation 3, verse 3 says, Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. So he exhorts them remember the things you were taught, remember the things from the beginning that you were taught, remember the things that you've learned along the way. Hold fast to those things and repent. Hold fast. It's almost, it, it, it's almost parallel with the letter to Ephesus. Remember he said, you've, you're doing great in all these things, but you left out one thing. You, you've lost your first love. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. And then, he's, and then he encourages them, he admonishes them, he says, look, you know, 
Receive the discipline with joy. Be zealous. Repent. God loves those he disciplines, right? Isn't that what we're told? Yeah, that's exactly what we're told. If a, if a dad loves their child, they're going to they're gonna apply discipline. They're going to correct them. They're going to teach them, right? Do all these kinds of things. Why? Because they hate them? No, because they love them. Because they love them. All right. Then he, then he says to them, If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. So, Jesus tells his people, this is his church, right? It's his candlestick. And remember, the letter is going to the angels of the churches. They're the ones who receive it. And they're the ones who read it to the church. And he's telling them what? If you don't do what I'm telling you to do, if you don't wake up here, strengthen the things that remain... I'm going to come like a thief. You ain't even going to know what's going to happen. It's just going to be that quick. The American church somehow seems to think it's got it all together. If they just get the right guy in the White House, if they get the right guys in the Congress, if they get the right guys in, you know, on the benches, if they can get the right guys on the, on the local county council or whatever, if they can just do these things, all will be well. And they leave off the very foundations, their first love. They, they, they leave it off. They're willing to get their guys in there, but not men of good character. And they'll justify the guys with the character flaws all day long. Oh, well, none of us is perfect. Well, okay. <laughs> if that's your standard then don't be surprised when your guy is doing all kinds of lawless stuff. You know, we want men of character. And I got to tell you, I think that, that this is a message that we're hearing today. America has had, has had a history of which we have been known to be alive. We have been called a city on a hill. We've been called the light of the world. We've been called all those kinds of things. How bright's that light shining right now? You have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. You have a name that you're alive. You, you call yourself Christians. How, how many people, probably 80%, even now, would say they're Christian? If that is the case... Why are we in the mess we're in? Because we got a name that we're alive, but we're dead. And I think, there's, I think there is a message here that resounds with all of us, and that is what? Be watchful. Strengthen the things that remain. Why? Because I'm telling you, even in the midst of all of what's going on, verse 4 applies here too. Now, it's a few names even in Sardis which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Listen, friends, some of you out there, you know what I'm talking about. You haven't forsaken the Lord. You've grown in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is using you. You are being a light in your sphere of influence. 
You are seeking to strengthen the things that remain. Why? Because if you don't, you're going to be like Sardis. And who was going to come take out Sardis? Who was going to come deal with Sardis? Jesus himself, the king of the church. He said, I'm going to be the one that comes on you. It's really interesting. Got this little bit of commentary here. And this is, this is what it said about Sardis. The letter to Sardis ends like this, or like the other six, with an exhortation to heed the counsel, commands, and promises it contains. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The spiritually dead zombies playing church needed to heed Christ's warning of impending judgment. The indifferent believers needed to wake up before it was too late to save their church. And by the way, their community as well. And the faithful few could take comfort in the knowledge that their salvation was eternally secure. So what happened to Sardis? Did they heed the warning? Did revival come? That such a prominent man as Melito, he was, uh, he was a bishop there, served as bishop of Sardis several decades after John wrote, argues that at least some revival took place in Sardis. So God did give what he commanded. And the people responded appropriately. And it's not too late for other dead churches to find the path to spiritual renewal. Now, when I use the term church, I'm talking about the people of God. I'm not talking about pagan temples, and I'm not talking about whatever religion you want to be a part of. I'm talking about those who are under the lordship of Christ. And somebody had a question. I don't know what it was the other day. I think it was on... Bradley show. It might have been on ours. I, I don't know. But somebody made mention of, oh, y'all are teaching that lordship salvation thing. Dude, what Bible are you reading? There is nothing but lordship salvation. You're either bowing your knee to the Christ as Lord or you're not. There's not somewhere in between. I don't know where people get that that's somehow a bad thing. I would suggest you read MacArthur's book, The Gospel According to Jesus. I mean, that was out in like the 70s or something. And I remember the first time I read that as somewhat of a fair, maybe two or three years old in the faith, I remember reading that and going, this is the gospel I owe to right here. This one right here. And boy, he was being attacked all over the place. Being attacked all over. So what, what is the application that we can get, guys? Some of you are already doing it. That's what I love. Some of you are already doing what would be admonished here. You're learning, you're growing, you're using the rights that God has given you to perform your duties, both in your families and in your communities. You're doing that. Keep doing it. And you're seeing the results of that, aren't you? You guys are seeing the results of that. You're putting fear in the heart of the enemy instead of them doing it to you. And God's given you grace to do that. But what about this, guys? What about it? Are you strengthening the things that are remaining? Or are you just, eh, got no time for that? Man, I, I just, and I know what it is to be busy, trust me. 
<laughs> been working on this floor right here. I am almost done. I got like two little rows and I'm done. I know what it is to be busy. I know what it is to have all these distractions and everything else that goes on. But what, what I mean, we've got to look to the future here. And I think there is an application here for us. Verse 5. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. Now, what, what is that? What's the significance here? And you guys remember the, um, uh, the story of the prodigal son. What went on there? I mean, he apparently had he apparently had a good home. His father was must have been quite wealthy. He's got a lot of servants. He goes and asks for an, inher an inheritance early while his dad's still alive, and then goes run runs off, and that's why he's called the prodigal son. Is he's extravagant living? He's got all kinds of friends because he's got money. The Bible talks about he lives of sort of a riotous life. He's, he's living a life of debauchery. And all of a sudden, when the money dries up, so do the friends. And we're told that that guy, he was so low that he went and he started working for somebody who had pigs and for people in that time, you know, you, you don't touch a pig, you don't get around a pig. You don't smell a pig. You don't eat a pig, right? And there he is out there feeding the pigs the slop. And he's so hungry, he's wanting to eat what the pigs are eating, which is the refuse, the garbage. But when he comes to himself, what happens? He says, I'm going to confess my sin. I'm going to go to my father. Tell him I'm not even worthy to bear his name, to be his son but maybe he'll take me on as a servant. And what happens as that young man goes to his father? <laughs> He's been gone a long time. I mean, the story makes it sound like it was a weekend or a week or something like that, but he's been gone a long time. And Jesus says that the father saw him coming from a long... He saw him coming from a long way off. And he ran to him. Tells me, Dad has been looking for his son since he left. He's been looking for his son since he left. And he runs to him and he falls back and he hugs him and he kisses him. And the son's trying to put up the thing, but Dad already knows what's in his heart, don't he? Because he knows why he's there. He knows he's learned a lesson in what he did. And dad's just grateful that he learned the lesson and now he's back home. And what does dad do? Does he reprimand him? Does he go, you should have known better? You this, that, and the other. He's wasteful. You're sinful. Is that what he does? No, he knows he's already broken. He can see it on him. He knows. Hey, get that ring. Bring me some shoes down here. Get that white robe and put it on because my son was dead. But he's alive. Let's celebrate. He was dead. Now he's alive. Where are you at, friend? Are you dead in your sin? Do you still practice it? 
Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, many will come to me on that day, and they'll say, Lord, Lord, haven't we done many wonderful works? Haven't we preached in your name? Haven't we cast out demons? And what does Jesus say to them? Everybody say it with me. What does he say to them? Depart from me, you who, listen, practice lawlessness. You practice it. It's amazing to me to hear people talk about how just they sin all over the place, but God's grace is there. It's just being in the flesh. Nah, friend, you're to put the death, the deeds of the flesh, not to wallow in it. Not to make excuses for it. Not to use the grace of God as a license to sin. You're not to do that. If you're doing that, I, either you have gone way off of the path you were on, or you've never known the path. There's no two ways about it. Why? Go read First John. I told you guys, read that every day for, the, for a week or two, and boy, you'll get a ton of stuff out of that. What does John tell you? The one who knows him does not practice sin. It's not the way of their life. It's not the character of their life. That's not what they're known for. We've got to wake up, okay, and strengthen the things which remain. Church, I'm talking to you. Brothers and sisters, I'm talking to you. We have to strengthen the things that remain. And then we have a promise here. Verse 6, and we're closing out. He that hath an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Do you got ears to hear what the Lord is saying? Not what I'm saying, what he said out of here. Can you see the application there? Can you see what he's driving this church at Sardis to? And can you pull that application and say, yep, I need to be doing that. That's what I need to be about right there. We've got to strengthen the things that do remain before they're gone, before they're dead, completely dead, gone. And we've lost our state, our country, our community, our homes, everything. Why? Because all of those things are gifts from God. They're the blessings of God. Deuteronomy 6, by the way, when I talk about teaching your children, putting those things before them. What, why does he tell us to do that? Well... You guys know it, but I want to bring it up because I want you to see it. I think it's always beneficial, especially if you're going to go through you know, these texts and stuff, to let the people see it for themselves. And you remember, you're to teach these things, and then I want you to see why you're to do it. Verse 10 of Deuteronomy 6, And it shall be when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land which he swear unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give thee great and goodly cities which thou buildest not, and houses full of all good things which thou fillest not, and wells digged which thou diggest not, vineyards and olive trees which thou plantest not, when thou shalt have eaten and be full, then beware lest thou forget the Lord which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve him and shalt swear by his name and not go after the gods of the gods of the people which are around about you. Why? Because God's a jealous God. He's a jealous God. And so why does he want you to teach your kids 
about his commands, statutes, and judgments. That's what it starts out with, Deuteronomy 6.1. That's what it starts out with. Why are you to teach them? So they won't be forgetful when they are blessed by God. They'll continue to honor him. They won't have a name that they're alive, but they're really dead. They'll be doing what they're supposed to be doing. They'll be those, like at Sardis, who still have their white garments, but they're not spotted. That's why you're to teach them that. Everybody's looking for something to fix the political landscape or the economical landscape. Let me tell you something. You do it in the home. You do it in the home. All those wonderful little people that God gives you in your home, whether He gives you one or whether He gives you 20, if you trickle the Word of God in there and let it work, they're not all going to turn out the same way. They're not. We can go back and we can see Samuel. He obviously taught his boys and they turned out to be just the worst villains. Okay? And then sometimes God uses that as a catalyst for a real, a real great spiritual revival because moms and dads have been faithful to teach their kids. See, the enemy knows this too, guys. Let me just throw this in here. This is free. The enemy knows this too. This is why they want you to take your kids and give them to them and let them indoctrinate them for their evil purposes rather than you teach them the things God has told you to teach them for His. Do you see that? What would happen if every parent that names the name of Christ and every church that names the name of Christ, what if they took just that serious? Not any, Just imagine just this. If they took this serious, and knowing that in our culture we have a lot of broken families, we've got you know, single moms, single dads, and it's difficult for them to do some of this stuff because they've got to earn a living. And again, I think, this, I think this whole system is set up to fuel the fire for the destruction of the family. I, I really do. I really do. What are the churches doing to aid that, to bring that along, to make sure those, you know, they come alongside those parents? And, and when I say the church, I'm not talking about a building or necessary elders at a church. I'm talking about the people. Some of you out there, you've been so kind in sharing with me and my family on occasions, and I thank you for that. Um, whether it's through little gifts or sometimes some, some money you, help, you send to help us with things, thank you for that. Some of you are best blessed financially in that way. Some of you are blessed with a lot of time. You can go around and you can help others and you can spur them on with that. Some of you are blessed with businesses that you that God has blessed you with, that He's blessing the business, and you're able to give people jobs who might not have a way to provide. Strengthen those things that are remaining. Build one another up in that. Drive one another to the God of our foundations, the true and living God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and see what God will do. Stand against the enemy. I think this was the problem with Sardis. I think they probably became one of these seeker-friendly kind of churches. Kind of sounds like it. Wasn't having any impact. Think about that today. What can you strengthen that remains, whether it's in your life or in your community, in your family, or wherever? In this case, I think they had these spiritual duties that they were failing to perform, which would have preserved the church there at Sardis. It would have preserved them there. Just like all the other churches. Each one had different things that were going on. And in 
at the end of all of them, there was always a finish line, wasn't there? To the one that overcomes, to the one that finishes the race well, to the one that defeats the enemy, that mortifies the deeds of the flesh, and that starts bearing fruit out of their life, I will, and Jesus tells them what he'll do. And in this case, what's he told Sardis? He says, you'll be clothed in a white raiment. You're going to have the righteousness of Christ. And what's interesting is Revelation actually mentions uh, the bride, the church being like the bride adorned for her husband, and it mentions that she's, she has the it talks about the righteousness of the saints in there. Now, can I claim even a righteousness of my own, even though the Bible talks about the righteousness of the saint? I don't do that. Because I know that anything good of me, whatever it says that's coming out of there, the righteousness of the saint, is produced by the Christ who saved me. Again, I go back to what Paul wrote there in, uh, I think it was Philippians, where he says, it is he who works in you, listen, he is working in you to both will and to do his good pleasure. That's what he does for believers. That's how God can be confident in saying believers will repent. Believers will believe. Believers will bear fruit because he's the one doing it in us. And friend, if he's not doing it in you, and if your conscience isn't troubled by that or whatever, then you might need to go and spend some time with him and say, I need to examine myself. Show me who I am, Lord. I don't know. I've been there. I've been there. I'll tell you the story and we'll close out. Probably a year before my conversion, I'd been out. We have a we had a place. I think there, I think it's still here. It's over in Charlotte, North Carolina. It was called Coyote Joe's. Uh, we used to do a lot of club in different places and stuff. This was a country kind of thing. And uh, you know, you'd go out and you'd be with the girls and you'd be a drunk and you'd be a. I mean, you just. You'd be a hellion. That's what you'd be, okay? And uh, I remember coming in one night. Uh, we were really drunk. Um, we'd rented out a part of my best friend's dad's house. It was almost like a little studio apartment. He went to bed, and I went in there. His dad was up. It was like 12, 1 o'clock in the morning. His dad was up. He was usually reading something or watching something or whatever. And I came in. I said, can I talk to you a second? And he said, yeah. I said, something's really bothering me. And I'd already started to read my Bible, and as I told you guys, I read it, I, couldn't t- I put it down, I-, I couldn't tell you what I read, but I'd read it anyway. And I told him what I was doing, and I said, I, I said, I've made these professions of faith. I said, but it's like I hear people talk about this dramatic change of light in, uh, life, and I said, I don't know that I've ever had that. And I said, how can I go out living the kind of life I'm living and enjoying it, okay? Enjoying it. The pleasure of sin for a season deal? and enjoying it, and be a Christian. Now, I didn't understand all the theological implications. I didn't understand. I mean, I knew a lot of Bible verses because mom and dad pumped that in, but I didn't know. Spiritually blind. And Bill didn't give me, he didn't turn to me and say, Tim, well, are you this, that, and the other? He just said, let's ask the Lord to show you. I said, okay. He said a short prayer, I don't know, four or five sentences, Ask the Lord to open my eyes, give me understanding, and, and show me where I was. Within a year, that prayer was answered. It was being answered along the way. I think it was being answered along the way. 
and it ended with me being born again. Now, that story's continued, obviously. <laughs> but it was the work of God. It wasn't Bill's work. Bill was just a tool in the, in the hands of my father. He was a mouthpiece to speak something and to ask for something of the Lord for His glory. And that was to show me what I really was. And I can tell you, it was not a pretty sight. It was a frightening sight of what I was. But, just like the prodigal son, the Lord didn't leave me in that. Praise God. He didn't leave me in that. He delivered me from my sin. And He will deliver you too from yours. He will, but you've got to meet Him on His terms. You've got to meet Him on His terms. Go strengthen that which remains, guys. All right, Bradley be with you at 3 today. And Lord willing, we're going to see you back here in the morning at 6 a.m. with James Roguski. He's going to tell us what, what, what's going on with who. They done missed their deadline. Now what kind of excuses they're making and stuff. You don't want to miss that. We'll see you then.